Digital. Student-centered. Creative. Innovation. Imagination. Initiative. Stories that matter. I'm Jo Elliott, and this is Tales of Teaching Online, brought to you by Deakin Learning Futures. Thank you, everyone, for joining us uh, for this episode of Tales of Teaching Online. Um, today, we are joined by Dr. Sarah Lambert, who is an honorary uh, researcher with uh, Cradle uh, working on the Open Textbooks project. Um, and I'm really excited to speak to Sarah today about Open Textbooks and Open Educational Resources. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning or good afternoon. It's an absolute pleasure to be chatting about um, all things open. Yes. Perfect. Um, can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? and who you are as a, as a researcher and as an open textbooks advocate? Sure. Well, I mean, primarily I'm an educator and I, I started off teaching, um, teaching in the design area, actually, and I ran a multimedia business for, for many years that did web design. And um, so that was with the University of Technology back when I was in New South Wales. And then I had a big um, career of education, technology and management and strategy at the University of Wollongong. And it was there that um, open education began to emerge as a as a way of doing digital education um, that opened the doors to the university, to the community more. So a sort of more porous barrier in the way that we think about community service as a university and um, basically making um, educational resources and even whole programs um, available to the community for, for free because we had them anyway and they were funded by taxpayers' money. So why would we keep them locked in, you know, behind our walls? So there's a whole movement globally to... Um, to basically share the knowledge outputs of institutions so the community can directly benefit, whether it's individuals or organisations. And, and part of the rationale is, as I mentioned, government funding pays for most of the creation. So why, why do you need someone to pay for it a second time? Because it's already been paid for, which is a bit wacky when you think about it, right? So, so um, producing uh, resources, instead of putting copyright on them, we put Creative Commons uh, attributions license. So there's this really neat um, legal framework called Creative Commons. And it, it, it allows you to, instead of putting the copyright symbol on, you just say, you know, this is a license under a Creative Commons system and I am going to let you take this as long as you acknowledge me as the author every time because academic acknowledgement of the authorship is non-negotiable. So there's no concern with not getting credit for what you've done and then you just have to tell the people via the kind of um, little logo you put on your thing <laughs> whether you would like it to be non-commercial so people can't sell it um, or whether you'd like them to share it again under, under this open licence if they pass it on. And so there's just a few little um, little letters. Uh, CC by SA stands for Creative Commons Attribution to the Person Share Alike. You can put that there with your name on the bottom and that just tells everyone in the world, look, I'm sharing this thing because I want people to have the knowledge. I have no, I don't need to make a buck out of it. And in fact, those of us who have been in EdTech learning designs and through live through the movements of reusable learning objects know that you never, you never sell them and get a penny off them anyway. So it's kind of you want them to have impact, I think, is often the impulse. So if you, you feel like that about your teaching resources and 
this is one way you can put it out there and get um, a, a wider uptake for your work as the same time as getting recognition. So, yeah, through through that time at Wollongong, I managed an open education program, produced MOOCs for the University of Wollongong when that was a thing. <laughs> it was a very big thing there for a while. Did a thesis on why MOOCs didn't widen participation more than we had hoped. <laughs> and um, here I am still uh, looking at the um, very great way in which open resources and open courses can in fact widen participation if you do it very consciously with a few um, principles in mind Um, because if you put it on the web it turns out they don't get used (laughs) necessarily you have to you have to do some work building communities around um, resources and sort of needs Um, and if you do that kind of community building work and insert free resources and some sort of strategy and comms and goodwill then there can actually be um, quite a marvellous take up with um, different audiences for whom perhaps coming to university is not their thing or they can't that can't be their thing and so on and so forth so yeah that's is that it? I think that's it, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> mm. <laughs> that's a whistle stop tour of um, Sarah's career. Thank you for that. Um, so you talked about that community building aspect, and I, I do want to come back to that a little bit later. But thinking about our our teaching the the units where we're doing um how can we use open educational resources there how do open textbooks fit there and why does it matter for for our students um, open textbooks are probably the most popular and the most widely understood form of open resources particularly in america north america and canada and partially that's just because textbook use is still very big there, you know, like it's a, and um, students and the uh, faculty, as they call them over there, like a textbook and they're still often assigning a, a single major text for each course, which is not something nearly as prominent here in Australia or the UK where we have reading lists and we pull chapters from all over the shop. And, you know, part of that's because our digital legislation won't let us digitise whole books. Like, so there's a kind of weird workaround <laughs> that we're doing that, but we've ended up with this um, pick and mix reading list kind of habit. But textbooks, nevertheless, um, when they're when they're well written, they have this beautiful instructional voice that steps students through what can be very overwhelming new information, particularly in those foundation topics. And they have revision questions and check-in things and little case studies. And a lot of students still. Both young and old still, particularly with material that's very new to them, love a textbook. And that's still the case here too, whether or not they dip into it more or less depending on their circumstances. So textbooks are still kind of a big deal even in Australia. And recent research that I've done says, you know, sort of indicates that we still are using roughly 80% of us are using a textbook to some degree. Um, So... Those are just getting um, 
really difficult for students to get an unencumbered digital copy, which is what they tell us they want. Um, there are some students who still really prefer to get a paper copy, and that's that's great. They're going to Facebook Marketplace to get them secondhand. They're trying to get PDFs off the internet that it's a reasonable price. So there's all these workaround students uh, trying to get uh, a whole copy of a textbook, either paper or digital, that doesn't have any restrictions on it. They just want it on their laptop. They want to read it when they want to read it. They don't want to have to log in through six different portals and um, have it time out on them. And they don't want to just download six pages and print that out. And they don't want to go to some publisher's other thing that has 20 other passwords. And it's just getting really complicated, actually, to get digital text because commercial publishers at the moment, to be honest, their profits are plummeting because we shouldn't really be paying that much for texts that are digital. You know, like once you've made them, they're pretty cheap to distribute, but they're still charging quite substantive amounts. Um, these are public or uh, these are commercial entities that are trying to produce, you know, fun, um, value for shareholders. And the ways that they're creatively basically trying to restrict us from getting reasonable digital access is, yeah, it's a bit of a tension there. So I think the students in our recent survey, many of them are starting to get very fed up. They just want the textbook. Now, an open textbook that has been probably funded by either government or a philanthropic funder. So it's it's no less beautifully produced and, you know, the academics have been compensated in some way for their time through their workload or whatever or grants. Um, if that is put out under Creative Commons for anyone to use and share, then that means that not only do our students get the whole thing for free anytime, they get to keep it not only in the current unit they're doing, but all subsequent units that they might want to refer to it. If it's medical text, we find particularly they use post-graduation as a reference manual um, for free with no dicking around with the digital workaround situation. That just reduces their stress enormously. And for students with economic pressures, which is an equity issue, it actually can make the difference because they're actually typically not buying texts you know, in the current survey, particularly distant students who don't have an option of going to a library and COVID would just make that situation a whole lot worse. Free textbook can be a big deal. So um, considering that um, Accounting 101 is pretty much the same the whole Western world over, why we would want to, um, you know, hold tight to some particular person's version and charge someone 150 bucks for it when we could probably invest in one locally by adapting the American or the Canadian ones that already exist because openly licensed means you can actually reuse it too normally. So you can edit that thing, put it out for an Australian audience, which is what I'm doing with Amanda White at UTS at the moment. Yay, huge project, very exciting. Go, Amanda. Um, once that Australian textbook's out there and it's openly licensed, then the whole everyone teaching accountancy in Australia might go, dang, that's a good idea. And then think of all of those thousands upon thousands of business students, international students, local students who don't have to pay that for that one. And if you multiplied that out by a couple of foundation units or even designed your course so that there were no paid textbooks in the 100-year level, which is what's been happening overseas, then you can see some big potential strategic changes, actually even a competitive advantage for some institutions who are now marketing what are called Z degrees, zero-cost textbook degrees overseas. Um, so, yeah, very interesting for broadening your impact as well and your brand, 
getting the stuff out there. So people do it for a range of reasons, sharing, impact, call it what you will, um, and some exciting times. I think, as you know, digital tools, authoring and changing things, we're all DIY nuts here in Australian institutions. We're all making resources all the time. It's easier the tools are a lot easier and a lot cheaper and the institutions often lay them on. So, you know, if you're going to make a thing and you're probably not going to make a mozza out of it, you might want to think, you know, maybe this is going to be incredibly wonderful for all students of Topic X if I if I make this an open resource. So that's, um, yeah, that's what's happening at the minute. So it sounds like there's lots of benefits there for, for students, for staff getting their, their name out there, as well as for um, increasing that accessibility for, for students as well. Yes. Um, also for um, for institutions building their, their brands, but also advancing knowledge in the discipline. Um, like you spoke a little bit about being able to adapt, um, to um, be able to adapt this to to your context. Um, so I, I think it sounds very exciting. Where where would I start? How can um, teaching staff um, start using open textbooks in in their units? You mentioned a little bit about community, the importance of yes. you know community <clears throat> building. Do you? connect with one of those communities and see what's out there? How how do you get started? Sure. Well, it's sort of, I think there's as many pathways as there are individuals and what makes them excited today. But, um, you know, uh, if you are a textbook user and if you um, do have a textbook that you get some feedback from students that, gosh, this is getting harder to get and I'm really tired of the, you know, you can only have 20 concurrent users thing, then I would suggest, um, well, certainly if we're talking about Deakin, but at all universities, your library will have a library guide, commonly called a LibGuide, on OER searching. So first thing you can do is just find out what might there be in the current stock of probably American and Canadian, but sometimes European, but mostly uh, American Canadian knowledge of OER on my topic. So go to the library, read the LibGuide, and you'll see... There's basically some special search engines and special repositories that the people are trying to combine um, their open textbooks because one of the biggest problems is when University X makes six books and University Y makes four books and no one knows they exist, like getting them discoverable has been probably the hugest thing. So they're putting them into bigger repositories. So the library and the LibGuide will give you the update on what's probably the best way to search in your area. Um, there's an Oasis search engine I found the other day. I sort of keep forgetting about it and remembering it, and it's kind of like an aggravator across a lot of OER sort of spaces. But whatever way, the Open Textbook Library is another big one. Have a look and have have a look what you've got um, because you might find you can um, right now, uh, in addition to the text you've prescribed, you might be able to just put a link up on on your on your unit site saying, "Hey, look." This is not the same textbook, but it covers a lot of really similar ground and it's fully available. So if you're having any difficulties or if you'd like, here is a thing that's going to cover off on some similar stuff from American perspective. Now, I think, um, you know, if it's uh, pounds or, you know, different kind of names and stuff, that's probably in the light of students not being able to get the, <laughs> the other one, it, that's a good start. So that depends, you know, that 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 might be one thing or you might find some chapters out of those textbooks where you think far out, this is really current. 
this is this is the this is the way I talk about this thing, and I don't like the way they talk about it in the textbook. I'm going to link through to that sort of stuff. So certainly you can just um, adopt the stuff that exists out there. If you're a creator and you like making things, you can have a chat to the library a bit more about how to use the Creative Commons licensing, or just Google Google a ten minute tutorial on the different licenses and just get those little logos on your machine and start practice slapping them on the bottom instead of the copyright and share your powerpoints or whatever you want to do. Um, you you can uh, that's it the sort of creators I suppose. And then if you do have like bigger dreams to take a existing um, OER or maybe make a big OER from scratch, then you probably want to come and talk to your library and your teaching and learning centre about grants. Now, I know Deacon's just did a first call this year for OER grants and that was amazing. They're doing some incredible um, local projects there and I, I really hope that they're able to keep that going every year. So they might maybe you want to just think about, hmm, next cycle of these OER grants, maybe I'll get together with people um across your uh, kind of teaching year or foundation or wherever you think you want to renew the curriculum because it's a really good way to update curriculum, incorporate more sort of um, Australian take on things. And that might be that it's actually a more of a focus on our Asian neighbours as sources of case studies because that's where a lot of our students come from and there's some great knowledge developed in those areas too. Um, Sometimes textbooks can be quite outdated with the kind of knowledge perspectives. It can be um, a little bit um, very uh, white, very male actually too. So you might want to just have a think about maybe I can incorporate some more um, female leadership in the discipline so you can actually um, really represent the discipline progress that's being made and also the students in your classroom with the kind of incorporating um, those sorts of notions of what makes it up to date, right? And that's often a bit more of a diversity of, of perspective as we're really coming to grips with different global knowledges on disciplines. Yeah, so just what floats your boat, there's going to be different um, angles. And I think the last one is co-creation with students through assessments, another big thing, a lot of research and practice happening um, in the States on that. Some of it's some starting to trickle into Australia. So if students as partners is your thing, there's definitely a possibility of um, co-creating some of these open resources with your students, which can be amazing pedagogy for the students' learning outcomes. Thanks, Sarah. That's, um, that gives us an amazing array of ways to, to get involved depending on, on where we're at. Um, just before we wrap up, um, I am interested to, to go back to that idea of community again. And you were, you were talking at the beginning about um, sharing our resources and the work we're doing outside of yeah. the university and with, with the communities that that we work in that mm. um let's face it because of digital technologies those are our global communities and and lots of people can can benefit um but you also flagged that um just putting things out there and doesn't necessarily have have the biggest impact so what are the things that we might think about when we are uh, wanting to I guess open up our work and um, to mm. get it out to the the people who might benefit from it outside of the university I think it's really important to just reflect on how you have impact what communities do you have a leadership role in you know it, it might be a work integrated learning situation you might actually have really strong um 
connections with employers that take your students on practicum and there might be a whole lot of really interesting work and happening between those situations. So, you know, maybe um, as part of what happens between students and those external organisations, you might be thinking about, hmm, their projects that they're doing for practicum out there, you know, can any of that um, be be stuff that is community facing? Could it be open access? How how can we, you know, in effect, ask yourself what the community needs from knowledge resources and and think about that as you as you move forward with those relationships? Because if you are um, coming together with an external organisation. Um, where you want seeking to have impact, you know, if you're having a relationship about your common needs, you're probably going to work through where your common effort could, you know, meet that. Um, you might work in the schools area. You might be a teacher trainer. You know, you might be teaching teacher trainees. You might have relationships with schools, working on lesson plans and curriculum together that the students produce. I mean, that's going to be a different sense of a different community and where some of the expertise might come out. You might develop a whole lot of <clears throat> teaching resource for, um, you know, how to handle particular very current classroom issues, you know, like how to do, say, you know, COVID remote teaching. <laughs> like if you're going to make resources on that, maybe it could be open, res openly resourced, put on, this, you know, a, a blog page, for example, rather than a LMS page and be something that could go out to the wider school community. So it just depends on which community you have authentic relationships already and just thinking with an open mind about how the kinds of work you do and the sorts of resources that you are likely to create in that could be just front of mind uh, conceptualised to have more impact and more openness as you as you do that work. I don't think anyone's going to just jump up and go, you know, I'm going to write, I'm going to do this video and it's just going to go viral and everyone's going to love it. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? Everyone's so different what is needed in a community and how you need to know your community before you know the right questions. So just stick in your wheelhouse, be authentic with communities, take the time to, to build that stuff up. And I think it will come. I think those answers will just, just emerge, but just don't have any uh, white saviour plans that if you kind of put on your super person panties and produce the biggest video and... <laughs> stick it out there that it's going to somehow hit what, you know what I mean? Which is a bit what happened with MOOCs, you know. We said, oh, look, we've got all this great stuff. We teach it at uni. Everyone will love it. We'll put it on the website. And it was at a very high, you know, university language level that required massive prereqs to access it. And funnily enough, the only people who could deal with it were people who already had degrees on the whole. So, you know, that's a case study in putting it online didn't mean that um, particularly uh, – um, audiences that people were talking about wanting to reach minority groups, underserved groups, that wasn't that wasn't a silver bullet in any in any cases. And in fact, I think those communities honestly had better things to do and were already solving their own problems and didn't need our um, <clears throat> savior underpants <laughs> anyway. They're already getting on with it, and we need to partner sensitively with different communities and um, work together, uh, not uh, gift our. Um, gift our brilliance to people. That's just not quite the attitude, I think. <laughs> I feel like we could talk about this all day. There's so many more things that I want to know. So I'm trying to trying very hard to limit myself. We're one more stop. question. I can feel it. Oh my God, she's going for one, one more, more question. Oh, okay. 
You mentioned that Australia is um, a little bit um, less far down the path um, of OER than some other countries, uh, Mm. the US and Canada, for example. What would you like to see from um, our regulatory organisations, from our universities, to be able to support and advance OER in Australia? What, What do we need? I think I, I think I'm not really an advocate for OER. I'll be honest with you, because any technology isn't there for its own sake. But it's certainly I think OER and open texts have um, quite a nice role to play to advance a sort of social justice agenda for education. Um, I think it will enable us to um, provide resources to those who find the um, physical access difficult, the costs difficult, and also. Um, there's a strong opportunity for us to incorporate Indigenous knowledges, which is very strong on a lot of institutional agendas so that, you know, people who have been missing from our textbooks who are a bit invisible can be a bit more present and um, acknowledged. So um, for our diversity, for our opening, widening access, I think there's there's a lot that um, they can do. And what I've recommended in the, um, I've got the final report from my research coming out quite soon in um, late September, early October, we're just working on that. But uh, there's institutional uh, recommendations there. And I think for a country like Australia, where um, we have had for many years our library fulfilling the function of making sure students were not forced to pay additional costs on top of their fees. Now, that's something we've had since the 70s, the Higher Education Act. You have to you pay your fees. You can't be forced to pay for anything else, you know. So the library has fulfilled this incredible role of getting all these extra books in for students who didn't, didn't or couldn't buy them. Now, other countries don't have that. So it's that simple. Americans and Canadians, and even over in the ditch in New Zealand, they don't have that legislation. So as textbooks have increased at four times the price of inflation to a ridiculous high, um, that is just a huge, it's been a bigger economic issue. So they went early with philanthropic funding and getting onto it because they didn't have the library as a support. So um so in some ways that served them now because there's just such a critical mass of OER stock and they've started with foundations and they're moving to more advanced topics and there really are whole programs now that you don't have to pay for um, textbooks and that is a big deal. But um, they're also updating them too. Canadians in particular are really strong on in incorporating Indigenous knowledge just as a matter of course, not, not as a big deal. It's not an Indigenous topic. It's just we're doing environmental science and we happen to be making sure everyone's knowledge is represented and if you're not doing First Nations knowledge as you're talking about the environment, you probably, yeah, you're probably not really uh, up to date, to be frank. So um, there's a lot of work happening there. But with Australia, we're kind of a bit addicted to publish relationships with textbook publishers. You know, they walk our halls and have do deals and that's just how we've been going for a long time. And that has served a lot of people. I, I don't get me wrong. It really has. And there's some publishers who really knuckle down and do Australian versions and, you know, make things happen. So there's been a lot of positive things that happen out of that too. But um, right now, with the costs of those arrangements, the levels of complexities, I mean, publishers are now bundling, you know, like you can't get that one textbook title, you've got to buy 100 like it's Netflix or something. And we can't, you know, some unis are saying we, we just can't afford that, you know, we can't we can't pay that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just that uh, right now, 
there's going to be some institutions, I think, in Australia for whom their digital capacity is high, their commitment to um, social inclusion and educational justice is high. They're going to put those two things together and go, hell yeah, this is mission aligned. Let's let's just do this. And at the moment, the University of Southern Queensland has been doing that for a decade. So they're already ahead. They've got their own textbook library. QUT's done a Pressbooks pilot, which is one of the common platforms for producing their you know, starting to get books out there. Latrobe invested 100K four years ago. They've got numerous textbooks out there. So I think we're just going to see that these pockets that were a bit disparate are starting to form um, a community. People are aware. We have the open educational practice SIG of Ascolite that brings all these folks together. We're hanging out and chatting about it. We're tweeting each other's stuff. Libraries are going to collaborate across Australia. I think we're going to see sector collaboration through CALL, the Council of Australian Universities Libraries, to put on press books for us so we can just jump on their version and not have to have one. So I think we're too small to try and go it alone. And I'm really hoping, for example, we might get together as institutions and decide that we're going to do, you know, we're going to do the foundation medical text. You know, we'll this three unis, we're going to do that one. And over here, they're going to do the foundation sort of sociology you know, text for Australia and make some sort of strategic plan about who's got the skills, the, the capacity and the passion, join up with some partners, smash out some of these sorts of key resources. So we're going to hit a critical mass of um, of open text for, for uh, and just really see where we go with it. I think... Um, I think in some ways coming a little bit later on, to be honest, the, the Americans and the Canadians have worked a lot of stuff out for us and it's nice not to be on the bleeding edge of technology all the time, hey? Um, it <laughs> certainly sounds like an exciting journey yeah. that we have ahead of us. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today um, and for sharing your insights um, and uh, the research you've been doing. I, I look forward to, to seeing that final report for the Open Textbooks project when it's published. Very soon. Thank you, Joe. And please do check out my website, australianopentextbooks.edu.au. Um, very small, small, pithy, um, bite-sized little updates happening on that blog. Um, it'll give you some examples about what's happening in Australia, who's writing textbooks, who's adopting them, the process, um, some summaries of new textbooks that are out. Um, so, yeah, if you're interested in this, by all means, um, follow that uh, follow that blog or my Twitter account, Sarah Lambert Oz, where I'll continue to um, um, definitely part of an in, uh, international group of people doing this work. So if you are a tweeter, if you follow me, you'll you'll end up getting um, through that quite a lot of juicy, interesting stuff. Fantastic. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Thanks, Joe.